because we can fill up empty seats as people feel safe coming back. So those of you who are here, God bless you. Will God bless your health? May he keep you safe and sound. And may your minds be as sharp as your appearance today because you are a mighty fine-looking group of people. And it's a joy to get to stand up here and to share from the book of Galatians as we continue this series. And what we're doing today is a lesson I've entitled Finishing Theology. Now, if I thought about it long, I probably would change that title. But I didn't think about it that long. I mean, I don't want you to think, oh, he's just throwing it up there. I gave it some thought, but realistically, theology continues throughout the rest of the book. But here's the key. Paul's letter is one where he frequently divides these into two parts. And he does that not in all of his letters, but in almost all of his letters, he kind of divides them in half, and the, not half, but into two parts. The first part is kind of theology. And the second part is kind of more practical. So we've been digging into the theology. And those of you who are theology aficionados have hopefully been enjoying the dig. Those of you who are more practical, who are saying, Mark, enough of this already. Tell me how to do better tomorrow. That starts next week. But today we finish theology. And to finish it, we've got three stops we've got to make along the way of this class. The first stop is to look at the realness of this letter. This letter's not just some, something found in a dusty old Bible that was written dusty ages ago that's, that's, that's just so out of touch and, and out of understanding. By the same token... This letter's not something that is so divinely, intricately woven that it, it loses its touch with reality. This is a real letter, and I want to talk about that because we've got some passages that show it. And then the second stop is one where Paul puts together, if I'm allowed to say this in a Bible study class, a really bizarro analogy. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's bizarre. I first taught Galatians in a home Bible study atmosphere. Uh, actually, it was in a home Bible study. And we would take turns doing, getting the passages ready. This was 45 years ago. I was 15. This allegory struck me as bizarre and I remember putting it in the back burner of my brain thinking one day I want to figure that out 
Then I get to college and I start translating Galatians out of the Greek. And this analogy or allegory, really bizarre. And I remember thinking, I think I sort of have it, but it's a bizarre one. And then I get to adulthood and I start teaching Galatians again. And this analogy is really bizarre. And then as the decades progress and I get to this decade, which is so old, I look at it and I got nothing better except to say this is just a bizarre analogy. But at least I've been living with it for 45 years and have some ways to make it seem a little more user-friendly to put it into computer speak. And then the third stop is kind of a summation that Paul puts into play as he transitions from theology to practical, which we'll get to next week. So with those three stops, let's stop at the first one, the reality of the letter. I want us to see that this letter came from a real life. Paul's a real person. We think, oh, the Apostle Paul, you know, he must have walked on water. He must have had, uh, 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 you know, a sinless life and, and all the rest. No, we've already seen from some of the tone that he's rather harsh at times. But we will see in great ter depth today that he's just a real person like you and me. I mean, God had a call on his life. Don't get me wrong. God has a call on your life. He has a call on your life, Oliver. He has a call on everybody's life. God doesn't generically call us, oh, come be a Christian, have a good day. Paul in Ephesians says that he's prepared good works, especially for you, for you to walk in them. He's got a calling on your life. You get to choose, am I going to walk in that calling or not? But he's got the calling there. And so Paul is living a real life, just like you and me. And it's in a real time. It's not just, oh, back in the dusty days. And he's writing this letter to real people, not just some weird church idea. Look, 2,000 years almost have passed, but the reality of who we are as people has not changed one bit. The reality of what a church life is really hasn't changed one bit. And I want us to see that. See, this letter starts out, 417 or 412, we'll get to it in a minute. But it tells us that Paul had a very real problem in his life. I don't know about you. Have you ever had a real problem in your life? I suspect we all have, we all do, and we all will. And I want us to see Paul's problem. So let's look at it up here. Galatians 4. Brothers, I entreat you. Become as I am. Actually, they've transformed the word order. The Greek starts out, Become as I am, that I also as you, brothers... I beg you. So that's the word order in the Greek. But here in the, 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 the English, brothers, I beg you, I entreat you, become as I am, I've also become as you are. That's real stilted English. 
because the Greek is just kind of a very colloquial everyday. It's, hey, come on, guys, I'm begging you. Treat me the way I treat you. Be with me the way I want to be with you. Let's be the same together. You, you did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Look at this. Paul preached the gospel to them because of a bodily ailment. Paul was sick? Yeah. Like bad sick enough for people to remember? Yeah. I mean, well, what was it, Paul? I'd like to know because I'd like to know if I have the same sickness. I could say I've got Paul syndrome. But Paul doesn't tell us what it is. Now there is historically gazillions, that's a real number, gazillions of people who've gotten PhDs and master's degrees. And they always have to come up, and they've written books, and they always have to come up with something new. You can't get a PhD and write a dissertation that says, uh, I read this guy's dissertation, I agree with him. Can I have my doctoral degree? You've got to contribute something new. So this has been a wealthy place for people who write to say, I think I know what Paul's ailment was. No one's got a clue. But they, well, they have clues. No one knows. Let me put it that way. Let's look at it. A bodily ailment. In the Greek, it's the word asthenia. Asthenia in the Greek is the word bodily ailment. Now, asthenia, if we take that Greek word and we put it into English letters, the A, the sigma S, the circle, the zero with a line through it, that's a TH. TH, E, the V looking shape, the new is an N, and then EI is just I, A in the way we pronounce it. Asthenia. That's the Greek word for a serious bodily ailment, something that's debilitating. Now you might look at that and say, wait a minute, I happen to have a smattering of medical knowledge. And I happen to be aware of a condition, my asthenia gravis. Could Paul have had my asthenia gravis? Nah. They just, I mean, there's no reason to think he did. Don't think the Greek word just translates. The reason myasthenia gravis has that name as a condition is because they're just using the Greek word. It's not like the Greek word didn't mean myasthenia gravis, okay? But it's an excellent way to remember, if you ever want to remember the Greek word for ailment or serious injury, bodily disease or something, asthenia, myasthenia gravis. It's easy remembrance. But that's not it. So what are the other clues? Because people are always trying to figure this out. What was Paul's bodily ailment? Well, some people find a clue in the next verse where Paul says, and through, though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. People say, aha, aha. Look at the word despise. Ek, X in this form, but ek means out. 
And this is my favorite Greek word. Now, Janet Seifert makes fun of me because I will tell you every week, this is my favorite book of the Bible, or this is my favorite passage, or whatever. And it's always something different, so my favorite seems to rotate. This really is my favorite Greek word. You're going to learn this Greek word. This Greek word is... Are you ready? Look, I'm telling you, man, this is a Greek word. This, is, this isn't like come by night my favorite Greek word. This has been my favorite Greek word for probably 40 plus years. That is the Greek letter P. Okay? That is the Greek letter T. That is the Greek letter U. And that is the Greek long O. Patuo. Patuo. You know what patuo means? To spit. Patuo. Patuo. I just love the word. Patuo. It's like an onomatopoeia. Patuo. I'm spitting just saying it. Patuo. Ek patuo. To spit out. You did not scorn or spit out me. You didn't spit. Well, what do you mean spit out? Regurgitate Paul? No, but some people recognize that patuo, spitting, when you were confronted with a person, often related to a physical condition. There are still many cultures, the Jewish culture, the Greek culture, that will spit three times to avoid the evil eye. So I brought a show and tell to give you an idea of this today. The show and tell is from Theophrastus. Theophrastus was the successor to Aristotle in the Lyceum to teach. He was friends with Aristotle, and Aristotle handed the baton to him. And we don't have a lot of his writings, but we've got a number of them. And among them, we've got his characters. Now, he was um, a botanist, and, and he knew how plants worked, and he knew about um, medicine to some degree. And in his characters, chapter 16... He writes the following. Whoops. There we go. Hold on, hold on. Too many buttons. He writes the following. If he sees a madman or epileptic, he shudders and spits down at his chest. By the way, do you remember the Greek word for spit? It just happens to be here, patuo, although it's written patusai there because it's third person singular verb, patuo. He spits down at his chest. Because of this, some scholars think that Paul had epilepsy and that he had fits of epilepsy and that it was those fits of epilepsy that Come on, come on, come back to me. Come back to me there. 
it was this fits of epilepsy. He's referencing, you know, you didn't spit at my chest. <laughs> like, I don't want to get your epilepsy. Stay away from me. So some people take that and, and, and believe that it, it's a reference to epilepsy. Eh, I don't know. Maybe Paul had epilepsy. We don't know. Now, some people want to find it, and they say it's something different. They say, not only you didn't despise me, um, whoops, but it says, what then's become of your blessedness? I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Now, that might mean just Paul's making an expression like, I'd give you my left arm. You know, we, we use expressions like that. You know, I, I, I'd give you my eye teeth. I don't know. I'd give you, we have expressions. I've got, got a friend whose favorite expression is, instead of saying, you know, I care about you, this friend says, I'd give you a kidney. Now, if I ever needed a kidney, I'm not so sure that that person means it literally, but, you know, I'd give you a kidney. It's just an expression. Maybe Paul's using an expression, but maybe Paul had an eye problem. And so he's saying, you'd have gouged out your own eye and given it to me. And, and what, what um, exemplifies this further, maybe a further indicator that this is accurate, is at the end of the letter, a couple of verses from the end, Paul says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. So the idea being that he had a vision problem. So he's got to write his name with really large letters there at the end of the letter. So maybe he had some eye problem. We don't know for certain. Is this the same as the thorn in the flesh he talked about to the Corinthians that he prayed three times would be gone and it never left and God just said my grace is sufficient for you? We don't know. But what we do know is Paul had a problem. This is a very real man writing a very real letter to very real people. And if you have a problem right now that you're facing, you're not alone. It's not a sign God doesn't love you. It's not a sign God's turned his back on you. It's not a sign that God made you defectively. It's a sign you're a real person too living on this side of eternity in a fallen world instead of that side of eternity in an immortal world. That's what it means. So kind of join the club. But it's a club where Paul was a charter member. So Paul had a real problem, but we can't stop there. We need to see that God was still at work. And he's still at work in us, in spite of any real problems we're experiencing. I mean, look, Paul had a real problem. Paul could have shut down. But instead, Paul went, oh, by the way, I'm, I'm remiss if I don't say there are lots of other theories that are out there. Uh, William Ramsey, who was a biblical scholar, uh, read good Greek and also an archaeologist of sorts, an explorer in the early 1900s, late 1800s, um, he thought that uh, Paul got malaria 
down low where all the mosquitoes were on the coast and that's why Paul went up into the mountains to Galatia which was typical way to try to get over the malaria so I mean there are lots of theories but but we know that Paul didn't shut down because of his problems he sought God's help and let God work in spite of his problems so in spite of what Paul was which he thought was detestable to the Galatians they embraced him they came to a saving faith Paul's selling point for the faith was never if you become a Christian you can have all the success and happiness that this world can offer you'll have no more problems your health will be pristine your finances all you could ever want your relationships beautimous except for the satanic people in your life and you will trample upon them and always walk in victory that's not what Paul was selling Paul wasn't selling a gospel of happiness that comes from this world Paul was preaching the good news that Christ died to cover all of the maladies and problems of this world that are a fruit of sin so that we can be born again into a world that is coming that is one of no tears no pain that's what Paul was preaching and through Paul's weakness the message had the power and the Galatians came to a saving faith I mean look through my though my condition was a trial to you you didn't scorn or despise me you received me as an angel of God angelon of God is angle is the root of the gospel word you angelia the good message so you received me as a messenger who brought you the good message of Jesus they received him I mean his whole point that we looked at earlier in Galatians 3 2 it, Paul said let me ask you only this did you receive the spirit by works of law or hearing with faith the answer is obvious it's hearing with faith Paul through his problems God at work brought faith to the Galatian people and that's wonderful I love that I also love this passage because it shows the realness of Paul's affection Paul had an affection for those people and those people had an affection for Paul okay true confessions there are times where I am so excited to get ready to come in here and to teach y'all I'm 
reading the Greek. I'm having a good time. God's just opening up vistas and horizons that are encouraging to me personally. And the idea that I get to share that with y'all is encouraging to me. And it's just great. The sun is out, the wind's behind me, and I'm sailing into a beautiful glassy sea. But there are other times where I got to tell you, I'm not really in the mood. <laughs> I'm just being honest here. There are times where it's kind of like, oh man, I don't have time. All I need right now is sleep. Or I've got this deadline at work. Your Honor, can I take an extra week? I need to prep for my Sunday school class. <laughs> there, there are times where I'm just like, hey. And one of the things that keeps me going is a genuine affection for you. I just, no, I, no, no, no. I just, I really feel, I think these people are coming to this class because they expect the word of God to be open to them. How special. I, I don't, I don't want to miss being with you. I don't know all of you by name. I recognize most every face in here. Oh, you guys on the very, very back row, I don't know as well. <laughs> but I know where you sit. I get to watch you. I watch the people who are at the extremities. I know Tim Wilson's going to be as close to that door as he can be on the front row, though. <laughs> and it's not because he wants to leave quick. It's because when he comes in, he wants to take his seat. And he always comes in that door because he parks out at the dumpster. I, I, I know you, and I have affection for you, and I know you, to some degree, have reciprocal affection. Oh, some of you may not. Some of you may be, ah, we're just in here because we have to be. We've got to be somewhere. That's okay. I'm not, fine. I'm not upset over that, but some of you, I get emails. I get cards. I get, I get you here. And I love that. And Paul had a genuine affection for those people. And they did for him. And in the midst of this harsh letter, we should not lose track of that. Paul says, what then has become of your blessedness? Makarismos is the word for blessedness. Uh, um, that's the word used in the, the Beatitudes. It's, uh, uh, it means a kind of a joyful happiness. What become of, of this, this happiness? I mean, you guys were going to gouge your eyes out for me. I testify to you, if possible, you know, you would have done that. Paul says, my little children, uh, the word tekna is, is um, translated little children, tekna is a little child, but it's also a term of endearment uh, that doesn't have to be used for a child. So he's not doing it like, hey, little baby, you know, in a pejorative way, in an insulting way, in a little left-handed, okay, baby face, you know, it's not that. He's, he's using it as a term of affection. You're like a child to me. I care for you. 
my little child. You know, you're, you're important to me. I, I'm in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's real Paul language. Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord. And he's referencing Moses who had to veil his face uh, in the presence, uh, after being in the presence of God, not beholding God, but the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image, the image of Jesus, from one degree of glory to another. So God is in the process of forming Christ in us. You say, I'm not there yet. That's okay. You get closer every day. That's the problem. That's what God's working on. God's not as worried about where you are today or where you were yesterday. He wants to know where you're going to be next. He's at work in you. He's fashioning Christ in you. That's glorious. That makes me want to say to my sweet wife, I fell for her once, I might as well fall for her again. That makes me want to say to my sweet wife, it's okay, I'm going to be better tomorrow. God's at work in me. I have a dear friend uh, who works at our law firm still. Uh, he's the head of our issues and appeals section. His name's Kevin Parker. Good Christian fella. When we were in high school, we were best friends. And he used to say to me periodically in high school, just often enough to make the joke, um, which would be like for him every day, he'd say, hey, can't wait till tomorrow. And then someone else would be standing around and they would always say, why? And he'd look at him and say, because I get better looking every day. Um, I've known him for 50 years. It's not true, but he would, <laughs> he would say it. Um, but we do get more Christ-like every day when we live under the blessings. I'm just really having trouble today. All right, I don't remember where I was, but I hope it was important and I hope it changed your life. Let's go to the next point. Because of, of, of Paul being sick and God still being at work and the affection that they had for each other, that affection doesn't mean, so you just do whatever you want to do. I don't really care because I love you. No. That affection makes truth even more important. It's, uh, look, look, parents right here with their kids right in the middle. Two of their four. Two of their, yeah, four. Two of their four right there. They care so much for their kids that sometimes they're willing to do the things that don't really make their kids happy at the moment. Because the truth of the situation is more important than how they feel. Now, that doesn't mean feelings are unimportant. I can remember my dad correcting me when I was a child. My dad was a believer in corporal punishment. Now, that's a nice way of saying I would get spankings. But not very often. Only if I was like flagrantly disobedient. That was about it. 
But I think almost every spanking I got as a child, my dad would say, this hurts me more than it does you. And I will admit, sometimes I thought, there's no way. <laughs> but I also know as a parent, even though I'm not able to always be Disney dad and give my kids everything that they want, there are sometimes you've got to say no. There are sometimes you've got to sit, let their feelings take a second priority to the truth. And that's what Paul's doing. Paul's saying, but look then, am I become your enemy because I'm telling you the truth? Instead of what you want to hear? I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. I'm perplexed about you. I'm aparumai. I'm perplexed. I'm like, what is going on with them? Did you ever watch Seinfeld? Did you ever see how, um, who was the fellow that played George's father? Uh, something Costanza. Um, but he would, uh, it was uh, Ben Stiller's dad, Jerry, Jerry Stiller, who played the role. And when he would talk to George sometimes, and George wasn't doing it, he'd bonk him on the head. He'd go, like that. You know, that's like Paul. Paul, oh, what's wrong with you? I'm perplexed. I can't figure this out. I'm telling you the truth. That's what, that's what I'm incumbent to do. Now, we better keep moving. That's the reality of the letter. You see how real that is? That's like us. We can talk. We can relate to that. That's real stuff. Now, let's look at this bizarro allegory, and it's just bizarro. I, I, I don't know any other way to do it. Paul starts out by setting up. He's setting up for the, the, the table, for the allegory. Look at how he sets it up. Okay. Legatemoi. It means tell me, talk to me. You could answer the telephone back at the time of Paul. Legate moi, talk to me. Tell me, you who desire to live under the law, you who desire to be right before God by what you're doing, you who desire to self-justify, are you listening to the law? Do you listen to the law? You want to be under the Torah? You better listen to the Torah. And if they did, Paul would have something to say to them. You can't handle the truth. You can't handle the truth. Say it again. You can't handle the truth. Except he would say, you can't handle the Torah. You can't handle the Torah. Remember, the Torah is not just those legal parts of Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. The, the, the Torah includes Genesis. The Torah includes Abraham. So having set the table, look at this. It's written. Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. You remember the story? Abraham's told that through his offspring, all the world will be blessed. Abraham believes God. His faith is counted as righteousness. But Sarah and Abraham are barren. 
Everybody always blames Sarah. Could have been Abraham's fault, but probably was Sarah's. Only because Abraham was able to have children through Sarah's handmaiden. Sarah's got a slave. And it was acceptable at the time to get the lineage, to pass the family treasures through, to send the slave in to do the motherly job of having the child. So Hagar and Abraham sleep together, and Hagar has a child, Ishmael. That was Sarah and Abraham trying to figure out how to force the prophetic word of God. That wasn't God at work. God shows up later, years later, and says, no, 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 no. I said, you and Sarah. Sarah laughs over it because she's so far beyond childbearing age. In fact, when Isaac is born, Isaac's name comes from she laughs. But that's the child of the promise. So the child born to the slave was born according to the flesh. That was, that was man's effort. But the child of the free woman, not the slave, Sarah, the child of Sarah, was born through God's promise. So Paul then says, this is an allegory. Now, does that mean it didn't happen? No, this, this story happened. This is a real story. Paul's not escaping the real story. He's just saying it's got another meaning that he wants to use. Allegories serve as well. We're used to allegories that are not true stories. And so we don't need to confuse that with the Greek idea. The Greek, it could be true, it could not be true. He's making an allegory out of a true story. If you like to read allegories or don't know if you like to read allegories, let me tell you four allegories everyone should read, especially if you're young. If you're below the age of 25, you need to read these allegories. Are you ready? You need to read all four of these if you've not read them. Okay, number one, Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan is one of the oldest allegories in the English language. It's amazing. It, you can read it at any age and you can benefit from it. Absolutely stellar. The Chronicles of Narnia, a classic set of allegories. One of my favorite allegorical situations is in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where you have the, the duffel puds. If you have not read about the duffel puds, read about the duffel puds in the Void of the Dawn, Voyage of the Dawn Treader and see if it's not you and me. Allegories. If you've not read Hind's Feet on High Places by Hannah Hernard, you ought to read it. It's a marvelous allegory. And then last, there's a trilogy called The Singer Trilogy by Calvin Miller. And the first volume is The Singer. It's especially good. The song is also good. And the finale, you got to read it because you read the first two. Polite way of saying I like the first one best, the second one's good, and the third one I just read because you don't want to quit half two-thirds of the way through. Um, but it's a marvelous allegory. You should read those. Here's what Paul says. Paul says, this story I'm telling you, this may be interpreted allegorically. By the way, do you know the Greek word for allegory? It's allegory. This may be interpreted allegorically. That's what really it is. That's A, 
L-L, long E, G-O-R, and then it's just got umina at the end for its different places in the language. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two different covenants. And God actually does make a covenant through each of those women and children. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, but she corresponds to the present Jerusalem. And Paul means there the temple system, the religious of, religion of Jerusalem. For she's in slavery with her children. Because that's what the law is. It's bondage. It's slavery. But the Jerusalem above, the heavenly Jerusalem, is free and she is our mother. Now, that's fascinating. And by the way, Jerusalem here, Paul's talking about it using it religiously. Even Jerusalem is an allegory for him in his usage here. And you, you can see it by the, the, the context of how he's saying it. But if you're reading it in the Greek, you'll see here that he spells it out the way you would sound it out if you were Greek. So it's Jerusalem. Jerusalem. When earlier in the letter he's writing about the geographical Jerusalem, he doesn't do that. He uses a different spelling. He uses the, the spelling for what the geographical place would have been like in the, in, in the Greek language, Jerusalem. So Paul in the Greek is giving you an indication. He's talking about it as a religious idea, not a geographical place. So he's saying, one is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now look at the way this allegory breaks down. Paul says, Mount Sinai. Hagar and her son get driven out into the wilderness where Sinai is. But Mount Sinai is where Moses got the law. So what Paul is saying here is that allegory of her that's found in the Torah, she, Hagar, Mount Sinai, in the Torah that gives the law and gives way to current Jewish practice. You want to follow that? You're following the slave. Instead, look for the new Jerusalem that's coming down from above. The kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom, the kingdom of promise, because that's the free kingdom. That's the one you don't earn, and you can't stay in it through your goodness, only through the goodness of Christ. And that's the kingdom. So that's his analogy, and he says it's written, rejoice, and he's quoting Isaiah 54, 1 here. Rejoice, O barren one who doesn't bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate will be more than those of the one who has a husband. I don't have time to break that apart too much, but it's a beautiful passage. And Isaiah writes the passage speaking especially about what's going to happen in Babylon. But that passage, like so much of Isaiah, the early church and Paul understood also as prophetic about Christ and even about his kingdom that's coming. And so if you think about prophecy in that way... Old Testament prophecy 
is like, um, let's do this. It's not that different than allegory in a way. You take a stone and you throw the stone in the middle of the water. That's the prophetic word. In fact, we'll make that stone a P. You throw that in, and then what you've got is wrinkles of prophetic interpretation. So it's, it's like ripples that come out when you throw a rock in the stream, in a pond. So the first ripple could be Babylon. The second ripple could be the incarnation. The third ripple could be the resurrection. You can have another ripple that is the um, return of Christ. And these prophetic words have rippling effects. It's not just a one single fulfillment type thing. And so Paul is using this prophetic word out of Isaiah 54. And he's saying, rejoice, O barren one. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. The children of the desolate one. What God is doing in his freedom and bringing to be, we're going to outnumber those that are enslaved. So, that's the bizarro allegory. Now, before we finish, let's quickly sum with Paul. He says, now, brothers, like Isaac, you're children of promise. You, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Think about that. We are God's promises. I can't think of anything more encouraging I could tell you this morning. Doesn't matter if you've got real problems. Doesn't matter if they're going to get better or worse. Doesn't matter if you feel lonely. Doesn't matter if you feel sad. Doesn't matter if you're struggling, trying to figure out how to make ends meet. Doesn't matter what your real problems are. If you've got a malady that we don't even know what is. Doesn't matter what your struggles are. God is at work. And we are his promise. That promise will not go unfulfilled. The promise is never to make you glorified in this earth. The promise is a new heaven and a new earth. And that God will sustain us till then. And in, put within us, in spite of what's in this earth, a deep-seated joy and a deep-seated peace. And as he continues to sculpt Christ into our lives, we will experience that more and more. So our goal is to live under that by faith rather than trying to constantly measure up to what God expects through our own strength and virtue. We're children of promise. And just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, referencing the way Ishmael and his mother really um, um, abused Sarah and, and, and uh, uh, Isaac, what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. That's what we need to do. We need to understand 
that we're never, ever, ever going to merit God's love because we're good enough. Now, if you understand that, and if I understand that, all of a sudden, we are experiencing an unconditional love. And as certainly as the Spirit of God is within us, that doesn't leave us like, yippee, I can go do anything I want to do. It leaves us saying, oh my, what a precious opportunity I have to fulfill my Father's wishes. My Greek professor, Dr. Floyd, talked about when he went to Japan. Uh, Dr. Floyd taught uh, a Sunday school class of Japanese and Chinese students for decades at his church. And, and he went to visit some of his Japanese students that he'd kept in touch with over the years. Now, Dr. Floyd at the time was in his late 70s, and he and Virginia, his wife, I think he was in his late 70s, went to Japan. And they went to visit one student in one town, and they had a marvelous time. And that student then took them to the train station where they were going to catch a train to go to another town in Japan to visit with another student. And the student not only took them to the train station, but said, I'm going to ride the train with you. Dr. Floyd said, no, 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 you don't need to do that. And the student said, yes, this is my duty. And the student did it. Dr. Floyd felt terrible about it. They got to the next town, they visited with the next student. It was a wonderful visit. That student took them to the train station so that they could go to yet the third town. And when that student took them to the train station, the student said, I'm gonna ride the train with you to get you to the next town. And Dr. Floyd said, no, 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 please don't do that. And the student said, it would be my pleasure. Dr. Floyd said, I felt so different about the student who did it out of pleasure than the student who did it out of duty. Dr. Floyd said to me, don't ever forget that. If you ever think you're forgetting it, go home to Becky. And when you're doing something nice, say, it's my duty. And compare how she responds to that <laughs> with you saying, it's my pleasure. It's not our duty. It's our pleasure. And that's what Paul's saying. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel in Romans 1, 16, 17. The, the death of Christ for my sins. It doesn't shame me that Christ had to die for my sins. I'm not ashamed at that. It doesn't shame me to tell you I'm not good enough. It doesn't shame me to tell you I am a sinner in need of a Savior. doesn't shame me at all. Because that's God's power to save everyone who has faith. To the Jew first chronologically, but also to the Greek. In the death of Christ, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. From faith in the beginning to faith at the end. You start with faith, you end with faith. It's never been start with faith, end with works. Now works are important, that's our pleasure. But that's the fruit of the tree. Don't ever confuse the fruit with the tree. What's important is the tree. And a good tree, faith in Christ, real saving faith, will produce fruit. 
But don't, if you want an apple tree, don't go to H-E-B and buy a bunch of apples and go tape it on your oak tree. That doesn't make your oak tree an apple tree. It makes it an oak tree with apples taped on it. If you want an apple tree, you got to plant an apple tree. You can have all the good works in the world, but if they're not proceeding from faith, there are apples taped on an oak tree. The concern is, look, if you don't have good works, be very concerned because there's a problem with the tree. The tree is the key. So within that, Paul says, brothers, we're not children of the slave. We're children of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, finished. Let's move on to practical. And we'll do that next week. But here are your points to ponder. And oh, by the way, did I tell you Pastor Jarrett is preaching on Romans chapter 8 today? He texted me this text, and, and I, I, I don't know if he's going to have it in his sermon, and so I'm not going to blow it for you. But if he quotes D.L. Moody in his sermon, I want you to say, oh yeah, that's what Mark wanted to quote, because Jared turned me on to that this week, and I've been telling everybody. It's just a great, great line, but it's about Romans 8. So you need to go hear him preach, and you need to be listening for a quote from D.L. Moody. Okay, If he doesn't do it, because he's just got so much good stuff and only this much time, I'll ask him if he's going to do it next week. And if he doesn't, I'm putting it in, because you've got to have it. It's really, really good. But, but Romans 8 is a book of freedom. And so that's the logical place to take off from what we've done today. Let him explain how Christ has set us free. And that's coming in church. But before we go there, here are your points to ponder. This is a real life, and God is still at work, and don't you forget it. Point number two, God makes promises, and one of them is you. And he's promised to form Christ within you. You figure out your sin problems, and you take them to Christ and say, would you please form in me over this problem and let him start changing you from the inside out and then final, his promise is that very promise to form Christ in you. So let me bless you and let's go to church. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for everybody who hears this message. But I pray that your Holy Spirit will clean out our ears, will sharpen our minds, will quicken our hearts to the beautiful love and freedom and promise we have that enables us to walk securely in your promises for us. Fashion Christ within us, Lord. That is our fervent prayer through our Savior, Jesus. Amen. See you guys next Sunday, God willing.